Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Gaurav, good to have you on the show. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Thanks for having me, Michael. So where are you dialing in from? I am, well, at the moment, I'm actually in Ohio in uh, the United States. I normally live in Washington, D.C. So your base of operations for the office you serve is in Washington, D.C.? That is correct. Okay, so you're heavily involved in things that probably require a lot of legislation. So let's get into this, right? There's a lot we can cover. I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion. Let's talk about some of the changes we are seeing with your clients post-COVID or with companies you are serving? How are we seeing anything different with what clients are expecting after COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of couple of sort of, at least, at least if not different um, emphasis, right? So yeah. our work is all around change and transformation. And one of the things that's become pretty clear through the pandemic is that the level of, of change and uncertainty that organizations are having to deal with uh, is significantly different than it used to be. And, and you know, it's not necessarily a new phenomenon, at least certainly not from our perspective in that uh, it's been going on for a little while. The trend has been, you know, the last, I don't know, two decades, the level of change around us has been accelerating, but I think it's become much more intuitive now, right? So I think our, for our clients, it's far more intuitive that, there is a need to, to create organizations that are more adaptable, that are able to pivot at, at short notice, that are able to change rapidly. Uh, and so we're definitely seeing a, a greater recognition of that uh, yes. and, a greater, and a greater desire to, to create the sorts of organizations that can handle that, that level of change. And with what was coming after COVID, now there's this talk of a recession, which is slamming mm-hmm. the brakes for companies. Are companies ready to pivot if needed? Are you seeing an awareness? Are you seeing a readiness for this? I think, I mean, it's some are and some aren't, right? And I think the the lessons that at least we have learned from previous recessions is that the the companies that handle it well are the ones that are able to balance uh, being defensive and being offensive during, during recessions, right? Because uh, in, in a recession or for that matter, any crisis, uh, they are great opportunities, and and the organizations that have been able to uh, to do well through different economic times are the ones that are able to play defense uh, while also uh, while also looking for those opportunities and and not and not entirely going into a you know shut the hatches down sort of mode, but are able to still continue to look out for opportunities and take advantage of that. You know, are all organizations ready? For- for it certainly not. Um, are there more now than than probably before the pandemic? In some ways, probably yes, because I think uh, there is a recognition that we have the capability to change fast, and we, you know, with a little bit of focus and and, and application, uh, many organizations have realized that they can that they can pivot pretty quickly. So probably a little bit, uh, you know, a, a, f- a few more organizations that are ready for for rapid change than they were before the pandemic. Uh, but certainly not, certainly not every organization. 
So um, yesterday I was speaking to the CEO of a fairly substantial multi-billion dollar logistics and freight company headquartered in Europe and serving the bulk of the clients uh, between Asia, Europe, and a little in the United States. And he was talking to me about the fatigue he feels and he feels he's putting on his organization because before COVID came along, they were dealing with the repercussions of the trade war with the United States and China. Well, no one calls it a trade war, but you know, the yep. ructions there. And then COVID came. COVID, it more or less is, you know, moved away from the center of discussion in the West, but it's still a big deal in China. And now they're preparing for a recession. So in his mind, he's struggling to manage the culture the change and keep his teams motivated and energized because it seems that they're, they're constantly responding to crises. Are you seeing that with your clients as well? And what are some of the best practices in terms of managing that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, from our perspective, the most important in many ways issue for most businesses now is going to be how do you deal with this level of change, right? Because to your yes. point, there is a lot of change fatigue because it almost feels like every you know every day is a is a is a new shift in something that that you need to respond to and and the idea that look you could make some significant changes in your organization and then you know you could more or less not not ghost you could continue to improve but not significantly have to change your business for a few years and then you might have to make you know again a, a big restructuring or a reorganization and that world's gone now it's almost it's almost every Every few months, um, there, there, there's a significant shift, shift required in the businesses. And, and certainly we're seeing that with our clients. I think they're seeing that, I mean, the, the freight industry and the shipping industry, probably more so than most, right, is facing the, the impact of, as you say, the pandemic, the supply chain issues, um, and now and now the, the, the sort of at least the predicted recession, right? Let's, 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 not, let's not make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Let's see what happens there. But um, so, yeah, absolutely. We're seeing that with our, with our clients. Um, and the key is, how do you move from change being something that you start from a standpoint of resistance and how do I manage through this or how do I make my way through it and deal with it to change being more of, of an exciting opportunity that you're willing to embrace? And that's not to say, of course, that you know something like the recession is, a, is an opportunity in itself. Uh, but within the change that that requires and within the shift that that requires, there are opportunities. And so the more organizations and individuals and teams and leaders can start to frame uh, change as, a, as an opportunity, uh, the more people are going to run towards it because there are changes we embrace, right? I mean, if you think about your personal life, your professional life, uh, there are changes that you, that you look forward to. Uh, that, that spark curiosity, that spark the, sort of the, the, the desire for novelty. And so the answer to how do you deal with change fatigue is uh, not that it's going to go away because change isn't going to go away, uh, but that you make more changes, uh, ones that people are, are, are willing to embrace and, and sort of look forward to as opposed to change largely being something that you have to deal with and just manage through. Yeah, that's a great answer. I want to build on that because I think it's important for the readers, for the listeners to think this through. So what you're saying, and I agree with this, is that uh, leaders have to frame change as an opportunity and put in place the energy, the communication, and so on to draw employees and their leadership ranks and their board as well to support that. Is, is that a good way of paraphrasing it? Uh, absolutely. 
Okay, so I want to flip this around and I want to get your perspective on another way to think about change and, and tell me how you're seeing this play out with your clients and so on, okay? So I'm a big car guy. I've got a lot of friends in the automotive space and design and a couple of CEOs as well. And one of the things that they're dealing with is the move towards electrification, especially for supercars. And when I speak to these CEOs, what they say in public admittedly has to be positive and so on. But when I speak to them, they all tell me the same thing. They're absolutely terrified of the shift towards EVs because you know supercars were built on combustion engines and so on. So the question here is, and just to get your thought, is that of the CEOs and leaders you are talking to, how many of them are terrified of what's really happening? And they've got a balance, an outer communication for everyone and almost an inner communication in terms of how they manage things themselves. So basically yeah. what I'm asking is how are CEOs managing the situation where they may themselves be really worried, but they've yeah. got to find ways to motivate their teams and motivate their boards and put out a more positive message. What's that balance, if any? Yeah, totally. Uh, I'm going to go on a little tangent before I, before I answer sure. that only because I'm also a big uh, car guy and actually yeah. uh, I, way back, this goes back many years now, when I went to grad school, I went to grad school to study aerodynamics to design yeah. cars. You know, and, and it's a great example, by the way, because that is an industry where uh, it is a change that is going to be felt all across the industry, right? It isn't, it isn't one business, it isn't one pocket, it's going yeah. to be everywhere. And I think people see the, see the writing on the wall in that, that the pace is still unknown and how fast we transition is unknown. But I don't think there are many people who uh, who look out into the future and say, look, combustion engines are going to be a significant portion of car sales, right? At some point that is, that is going yes. to happen. And what that means is it's going to reshuffle the industry in a way that hasn't happened in a long time um, with some significant changes in, uh, in who the, who the quote-unquote winners and losers are, right? So that's certainly an industry that's facing that. And then coming to your question of uh, whether CEOs are terrified if uh, are scared of the changes i mean i think in some situations yes and the answer in my mind isn't to put on a brave face and try to project something other than what you're feeling i think it goes back to starting with yourself understanding what in the current landscape in your context uh, is a threat right that you that you genuinely are 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 worried about and what are the opportunities that you can be excited about and the EV example is a great one because the fact that there's going to be a big shuffling of the industry also means there are going to be big opportunities for, for certain players who get it right. And so the more CEOs or, or anyone for that matter uh, can start to really uh, understand and differentiate what are the true threats that they have to respond to and then what are the opportunities they can get excited about and talk about both because our tendency is to focus on on the threats. Our tendency, you know, and 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 we've when we were writing our latest book, we did some research around the neuroscience and the sort of biological reasons for yes. this. That the that the the sort of the the threats are much more uh, dominant in our in our minds than are the opportunities. And so the question is one: finding those opportunities for yourself, and then two: filling the organization with a lot more conversation about the opportunity. Right talking a lot more about what it is what it is in the current environment that excites you that inspires you you know what are the things that you as a company are best suited to take advantage of what are your strengths that you can leverage and and sort of having a lot more of that discussion uh, which is not to say you minimize and ignore the threats or or you minimize and ignore the fears you feel in fact 
talking about those and, and being transparent about those probably helps because uh, I don't think many leaders can really fool their teams anyway, right? Their teams sort of yeah. w- w- will see it one way or the other. So uh, so I think it's twofold, right? One is being transparent about, about the threats you see. And then two is amplifying the amount of conversation you're having about the, the opportunities uh, and, the, and the sort of the, 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 exciting, the exciting future. Well, you made a good point and I want to build on it. The changes will stay in the electric auto space around supercars because it's a contained space. And as you said, it's affecting every auto manufacturer. If supercars have to go electric at some point, and if the leader of the organization is not willing to see the opportunity in that at some point, the leader has to be replaced. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, he's not going to be able to galvanize the organization behind him. Absolutely. I mean, look, there's plenty of examples from history of companies where sort of the, the, the leadership didn't see where, uh, where the change was, was headed, uh, even, once, you know, even once it was far along down the path, and those companies don't exist anymore. Uh, and there are plenty of examples of technology disrupting industries, and then some players responding to that technology uh, in, a, in an effective way. And and sort of transforming their business to be able to adapt to that new technology and others that weren't able to and, and hence went out of business, right? So it's, just, it's going to be the same thing. There's going to be companies where leaders will pivot quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. And for those where they don't, either boards will take action uh, and, as you say, uh, make some changes. Uh, or frankly, those are going to be the companies that will not come out at the other end with sort of increasing market share or, or other, other measures of success. So if I'm looking at a sector, let's assume electric cars, or it could be anything, right? What would be the markers I would look for that could tell me either the management or the company or the board or whatever it is could successfully manage the transition? What would I be looking for as the lead indicators here? Yeah, I mean, I think two two things, one external and one internal. So the external uh, would be innovation on products in the current guys, right? So whether that's if it, if I take the auto manufacturer example, not necessarily uh, uh, is the is the manufacturer already sort of uh, electrifying the full fleet, and where are they on that curve? I mean, certainly yeah. that is that is an indicator, but also beyond that, other other signs of innovation, other signs of uh, an ability to adapt to whether it's different regions, right? So whether it's um, having products in this case uh, automobiles that are uh, that are more suited to different regions, whether it's uh, products that are that are more suited to different segments, and how and how historically has that business done uh, in uh, in responding to shifts in the market or responding to new markets, right? So that's one, which is the external piece, which is the sort of the the, the prevalence of innovation in some ways. Yes. And then the internal piece is how employees engage, right? Because one of the things that has change dramatically uh, and continuously uh, over, gosh, decades now, is the amount of information that you have to process to make good decisions, the amount of uh, sort of threats and opportunities you have to respond to suggests that you can't have three or four leaders at the top of the organization making decisions, right? That's no longer going to work. And so if you look at organizations where People are operating with a, with a certain level of autonomy where decisions are being made closest to, uh, closest to the action, where people feel like they can actually experiment and test things and, uh, and make decisions and act and, and, and do things differently, uh, and that's rewarded. 
those are the organizations that are going to be able to pivot and change fast. The organizations where decisions are very centralized, where you know it's very much reliant still on a command and control sort of structure, where it's a, a few people who are making all of the key decisions, frankly, are not going to be able to respond fast enough to all of the changes that are that are happening around us. And so that's the internal view, which is how much how much autonomy, how much delegation of control, how much leadership are you seeing from people who are not in positions of leadership? Uh, those are all great indications of companies that are able to, to respond to, to changes. I want to come back to the first, um, well, not so much the metric, but a marker that you pointed out, which is very interesting. You said that a company that has a culture of being innovative and responding generally well to changes is more likely to succeed than a company that doesn't have this culture and is trying to put together an innovative approach to this change. Is that a correct understanding? Yeah, I, I would say that's true. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So if I'm looking at, we'll stay in supercars because we started this discussion, but so if I'm looking to a company that has a culture of innovation, it likes challenges, it responds well to them, it has a higher probability of making the transition successfully than a company that does not have that culture, even though it may be telling us all the right things about the move towards electric. Absolutely, right? It's a little bit of... Um, if, if you look at the history of the company and you don't see signs uh, that the company is able to innovate and respond, I mean, if you look yes. at if you look at the sort of the car industry, right? So, for example, um, going all the way back to the 1970s and and the um, uh, and the fuel crisis, right? Uh, the companies that were able to, and of course, it's it's many years since then, so I'm not suggesting yes. that those are still that, that that's still true. Uh, but the companies that were able to very quickly pivot to making cars that were more fuel efficient and more um, sort of more in demand in that yes. in that in that time um, are the ones you would you would suspect would then be able to innovate for the next change right uh, and so that's what I mean by if you look at the history of of companies and look at how well they have been able to respond to changes that's a good indication that they will be able to respond to future changes. Yes, and I think the point for the, the listener thinking here is when we say respond to the changes, some of those companies may not even be in the automotive space. They may change themselves into something else, but be successful wherever they end up being. Yeah, I mean, there are already uh, organizations in the sort of auto space that are starting to uh, position themselves more as, you know, mobility solutions, for example, right, which is, which is still related, but, uh, but calling upon some of their strengths and skills. But, yes. you know, it's not about making a a product. It is not about a hardware component. It's, you know, it's, it might be software. It might be um, creating new and interesting ways of, uh, of providing mobility to people that are, that is not a, you know, it's not a car that you purchase and drive around, but, um, but other ways of, other ways of providing the service of transportation. And you're already seeing companies make, make, make bets on, uh, on some of those, uh, some of those new business models and new, uh, and new sort of products. So let's pivot back to the sort of the principles of change management, right? So when I was a senior partner in strategy, I did a lot of turnaround work for large state companies, whether it's banks and so on. What has changed in change management? So you've been in this field for quite a long time. You work with arguably one of the top firms in the field. What's changed? What has become the things executives should be doing differently with change management today versus, let's say, 20 years ago? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to what we talked a little bit about earlier, which is change used to be very episodic, right? And it was, um, 
you know, you would, you would engage change management when, for example, you were going through a reorganization, you yeah. were going through a merger, uh, you were going through something sort of, you know, large and, and disruptive to the, to the business. And you might do that, I don't know, once every three, five, seven years, right? There was something yeah. significant changing in the, in the environment. And so the change management approaches or the change approaches were designed for that. And if you, if you look at what's happening now, it isn't a, you know, it isn't a, let's, let's, let's make, let's go through a significant change every five or seven years. It's a, yes. we've got to deal with significant changes in different parts of the organization, almost simultaneously and almost continuously. And that changes how you have to approach it because you can no longer rely on a linear process driven, um, you know, sort of project management office led uh, step-by-step approach yeah. to change. It's got to be more agile. It's got to be more iterative. It's got to, it's got to involve more people. You've got to leverage the, your full employee base and you've got to engage them early so that they are participating in the change, providing ideas and not just ideas, but taking action um, and helping the change be successful because the pace at which you're moving is much faster and then and the amount of change you're dealing with is much is much greater and so that's i think the biggest change is is because of that context what that means is rather than following a linear methodical deliberate approach to change it needs to be more organic it needs to be more about activating and engaging employees to to participate and to and to want to participate in the change and making it successful right so that's so that's a bit of a shift in in, in mindset and behaviors and in the role of of change management as well, because change management has to be much more integrated with the business, has to be much more connected to business outcomes, has to be led by the line function. It can't be, it can't be delegated to a, to a project management office because it is integral to uh, daily operations and is not a one in every five years sort of event anymore. Yeah, what you say is true, because my experience is that change management programs were rolled out every time there was usually some kind of new strategy direction. And as you pointed out, consultants or internal consultants would set up a project management office, they would implement the change over, let's say, a year to 18 months. And then there was a feeling that they dismantled the project management office, and the change is now over. We don't need to change for the next three years as we sort of benefit from the rollout of the strategy. But what you're saying is right now, organizations have to be prepared to evolve all the time and that evolution is not driven from a central point. The organization must be equipped to evolve and adapt and change in all parts of the organization as opposed to something centrally led, which happens every three years. Is that a good way of paraphrasing what you're saying? That is. And, and what I would add to it is um, the idea that I can have a strategy and a strategic plan that lasts five years and yeah. now I've just got to execute against it doesn't work. I mean, think about, you know, all of the businesses before before the pandemic that had, you know, um, whatever whatever their strategy was, yeah. all of them have had to have had to massively change that. And I think that's not a one off occurrence. I think the the idea of a, a five year strategy, honestly, is is a little bit antiquated and yes. i think we've got to be thinking about not just shorter time frames but rather than uh spending time creating a you know a, a a long strategy plan with with all of the activities mapped out i think the approach has got to be much more around what are the assumptions that our strategy is is based on at the moment what are the critical actions that we need to take to make it successful and and how are we going to reevaluate those assumptions because they might change in 6 months 
And if they do change, what's what is that? What is the implication of that? Right. So a bit more scenario planning, uh, and a little bit less uh, sort of uh, traditional strategy planning and 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 sort of longer horizon um, plans for execution because we don't have that. We don't have that 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 timeline anymore. Yeah, and I think the other thing to consider is that when a lot of companies think about how they'll react, they look at their competitors. But as we're seeing now, macroeconomic issues like changes in interest rates, the strength of the dollar, forces companies to react even faster. I mean, I've got uh, former clients who had banks and so on calling me up and wanting to know what should they do as interest rates change, as the dollar becomes stronger and so on. So to your point, there's so many different things can force a company's strategy to change. There's no reason to even assume that you can sit there and wait it out for five years before you have to relook at what you want to do. Is that a good way of thinking about it? That that is that is com- completely true. Um, and I think you know it's it's interesting you mentioned sort of interest rates in the macro. Uh, you know, if, even if we look at something like macroeconomics, a lot of the assumptions we've made around how things move in step or where. Uh, what indication? What, what indicators mean what? A lot of that is not playing out in the way that you would expect, right? And I think that's again, uh, in my mind, a reflection of the uh, the pace at which things are changing and the and the level of sort of complexity and 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 uncertainty that's built into our modern sort of modern society because of which things are changing faster than our than our ability to keep up with it, right? And our ability yeah. to understand what the implications are of, of those changes on things that we have traditionally, uh, or not traditionally, but we have historically seen happen in a certain way. And I think we're seeing the yes. same thing uh, in the macroeconomic environment as well. You know, many years ago, I remember it was in vogue for companies to have these centrally controlled structures, whereby, for example, they have internal strategy units, and sometimes they bring in consultants as well to work with the internal strategy teams to put together these exercises that they would do and they would drive things top down. Now that was popular some time back and that required a certain type of leader. What is the type of leader needed today? What would be the attributes, the characteristics of a leader today who's gonna lead an organization that's going through change every day and that change cannot be mandated from the top? What type of leader thrives in that situation? Yeah, I think the first piece is, is leaders who uh, recognize they don't have all the answers and don't feel the need to have all the answers. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I think even still, although it has changed, it has changed quite a bit, but, but even still the idea that many of us hold of a leader is sort of this great visionary, right? Who can, who can predict what's going to happen in the future, makes great decisions because they somehow have have insights that the rest of us don't have, uh, and hence are able to, you know, are able to make better decisions than than somebody else might make. And, and unfortunately, I don't think that's actually true. I think what's what's most needed uh, is leaders who can who can activate that. Uh, you know, we talk about it in the book as, as as the thrive channel, who can activate the the thrive side for people, which is the yes. opportunity seeking, curiosity seeking side of of, of our human nature, right? Uh, and leaders who can activate that, who can get people inspired to to want to chase after opportunities, who can create a, a picture of, of what 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 taking advantage of those opportunities might look like, and who can articulate how the current strengths of the organization can be best leveraged, and 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 then uh, a little bit get out of the way and 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 let people execute and let people sort of 
lead in different ways and take on different things and try things. And, you know, sure, there'll, there'll be some experimentation and, and hopefully it's productive failures, right? We may learn from them. Yeah. Um, as opposed to the idea of, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm the person who, who knows the most about this because I have the greatest visibility into it. And hence, I'm going to not just set direction, but I'm going to, you know, create a, a very strong sort of execution framework. And then, and then folks are just going to execute against that. And it's all my responsibility. And it's sort of all, you know, all up to me. I'm obviously being a little bit extreme in that, right? But, but that's the shift that I think is, 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 and it started. I think it has started. You're seeing a lot more, not just conversation, but people behaving in ways that are more consistent with a, a leadership that, that empowers uh, others to act. Uh, but there's a long way to go still. And do you feel that these successful leaders adopt certain mindset practices that set them apart? It's a good question. Um, you know, I don't know, to be honest. I don't know if it's mindset practices or if it is uh, they have an intuitive understanding of the, the need to activate that sort of thrive channel and the need to get people excited in a different way. Yeah. Um, because if you look at, 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 you know, models of successful leaders, there are many different different models, right? It's not, there isn't one, there isn't one way to lead. And I think that's yeah. the other pieces. And a lot of, lot of conversations happen around this. A lot's been written around the idea of sort of authentic leadership. And I think that's, that's truly important, right? Because me trying to emulate, you know, the leadership of say Nelson Mandela, who I certainly see as a, you know, one of the, the greatest examples of leadership yes. in our time, uh, me trying to emulate that is, is meaningless because it, it won't work for me. It never will. And, and so finding sort of their own way is important. And so I don't know if there are, there probably are some mindsets. Um, frankly, I, I don't know what those are, uh, but I think there's multiple approaches that, that work. And it is about how do you get people, because leadership to me is very much synonymous with change, right? If, you, yes. if you're not changing, if you're in a business that's, that's in the status quo, you don't really need good leadership. You need good management for sure, right? You need people who can who can make sure that the trains run on time, but you don't need leadership. Uh, and leadership to me is synonymous with change. And so I go back to the same things that make organizations and leaders able to um, create an environment within which people are motivated to and able to change and pivot are the same things that create good leaders, which is the ability to activate, activate thrive and, and excite people to move towards something different and new. It's interesting you say that because I'm speaking to the CEO of a major company, billion dollar, it's a well-known company. And this lady is the only female CEO in a sector. Mm -hmm. And I remember speaking to her recently, you know, what motivates you to do what you are doing? Because the company, like all companies are going through major changes, a lot of competition. It's not clear they'll win against these competitors. And she was telling me that many things motivate her, obviously, you know, the desire to, build something that matters. But one of the things that deeply motivates her is the fact that if she does not succeed, she worries whether that will taint other female leaders in being given positions of seniority in her and other sectors. So coming back to your point is that, you know, you said every leader is different. And it's interesting what motivates leaders. It's things that we take for granted that we know are the known triggers for motivation. But each one, like, as you said, you can't be Nelson Mandela each leader is gonna have their own primary or secondary motivators. And it's gonna be radically different from what we've seen other people have. And sometimes when you listen to these leaders and they tell you what motivates them, it's always surprising because it's so personal to them. It's not something mm -hmm. they read about, it's personal. It comes from their heritage, 
their experiences, their obstacles and other opportunities as well. Absolutely. And they're, they're, the fact that we all have different experiences and the fact that we all have uh, different ways of looking at things also means the way that we, the way that we respond to situations is different. Uh, and hence, there isn't one template for how to respond to things. And, you know, and, and, and something that for me might be, uh, you know, exciting as an opportunity for you might, might actually create anxiety and fear. And so, and so I think for leaders, part of it is understanding their, their own uh, triggers and understanding sort of what, what, what excites them and what, what doesn't, but then also being sensitive to uh, and aware of um, what that might be for others, right? Because it may not be the same thing. Yes. So in your experience, have you seen any changes to the way leaders are responding, given this push away from a focus on quarterly earnings towards taking care of stakeholders? Have you seen changes in the way leaders are embracing that? I don't think they are conflicting, but I think sometimes they're presented as conflicting. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that question because... Um, have been thinking a lot about, you know, because the business roundtable a couple of years ago um, sort of redefined the purpose of the corporation and much more talked about, but, but sort of a taking a stakeholder view rather than, yes, rather than hope of privacy. And, and there's been a lot of conversation about it. I think the jury's out, to be honest. I, I, I think they are examples of, of leaders where you sort of see the actions that they're taking seem to be well aligned with the idea of, of a stakeholder view, but, um, but others that, you know, uh, it's it feels like it's more conversation and more uh, more talk than it is really really shift in uh, in actions and behavior. And the interesting thing about this, if you if you look at the history of this, right, is we. And I have to admit, I I felt this way as well until I looked into a, a little bit. Um, the 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 assumption is that this view of shareholder primacy yes. goes back goes back a long ways, and it doesn't. Um, the the history of it is it's actually a very relatively new way of looking at the role of businesses and defining the role of business as being primarily about uh, ensuring maximum return to shareholders. That's not, you know, if you go back to the 1950s and, uh, and 1960s or, or older, that's not how we viewed the role of corporations. So I do think there's a lot of conversation for various reasons. I think it's driven by um, the fact that there is, uh, you know, that with with sort of social media, with the connectedness of the world, uh, customers and consumers are far more uh, far more sort of active in terms of what they want from businesses, and it goes beyond just the product or the service. And so I think you're seeing businesses starting to react to that, right? Starting to react to what reputation and starting to react to what their customers are pushing them towards. I don't know how much has changed yet, to be honest. I think I think it's still still early to tell. Yes. Well, one thing I've seen is that I noticed that family-owned businesses, because they don't need permission and because they're going to retain their ownership over the long term, they are more willing to take the costly changes today because they'll be around in 10, 15 years to reap the rewards. And, you know, companies led by CEOs who are there for sort of a four-year, 10-year, I'm not generalizing across all CEOs, but there is a pressure for those who are not owners to do something that reaps a reward now so they benefit from it. But I've seen long-term olders almost see this push towards sustainability as being good for them. They are going to get the rewards in the long-term, even that may be pushed up. Have you also seen things like that? 
Yeah, and I think while it is while it is a sort of a, a bit of a cliche, but I think it's true that that private companies that don't feel the pressure of the quarterly earnings uh, do take a longer term view, right? And whether that's family owned, which I, I've done um, quite a bit of work in India and a lot of Indian businesses are family owned. And so I have seen that play out or whether it's, you know, private structures of, of, of other kinds. I think the big driver is the not needing to respond to uh, the quarterly earnings pressure. Yeah. Um, you know, of an interesting case study, um, not sure how much you've, you've, you've sort of looked in, looked at or read about Unilever, but um, you know, Unilever stopped doing uh, quarterly earnings reports. And, um, you know, at least from what I've, I've never, never sort of uh, researched it firsthand, but from what yes. I've read, uh, that had a profound impact on how, uh, on how the organization behaved, what the incentives were, how people, you know, how, how managers and leaders um, looked at their, at their long-term versus their short-term. Uh, so I do think there is, there is something to uh, the, whether it's the tenure of CEOs, which is, which is a lot shorter than it used to be as well. Uh, whether it's driven by that or whether it's driven simply by the, the pressures of the, of the quarterly earnings. Uh, but yeah. there is something to that for sure. Yes. So the interesting about Unilever is that the market did not respond very well to that. And it's interesting whereby, you know, I've, I know investors, major institutional investors who tell companies you've got to take a long-term view. But when companies take a long-term view, they're almost punished for it. So it's a difficult thing for a CEO to navigate because there's so many conflicting agendas and demands on them, but they have to find a way through it ultimately. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, you know, it's, it's always difficult to look at, uh, look at case studies, especially case studies that are still playing out, right? But yeah. I look at things like um, when, uh, when Kraft Heinz made a play for Unilever, Yes. Uh, the, and then the Unilever sort of uh, rebuffed that. Um, and the general consensus, and who knows, right? We don't have the counterfactual to this, but the general consensus is that was, that was the right move for Unilever uh, in, the, you know, in, in terms of its, uh, its long-term trajectory and, and, and valuation. Uh, and, and that was probably a very difficult decision because in the short term, it probably would have seen an increase coming because the offer was certainly above the, the valuation at the time, right? Um, so I, I say that to simply say, I think it's a bit difficult sometimes to, um, to know what, what the impacts were, uh, or were not, but it is an interesting case study where, uh, at least seemingly there was a change in behavior. Uh, and you're, yeah. and, and you're right. It's not, it's not clear that, uh, that the market responded well to it. Yeah. I mean, speaking about, you know, we, we picked up the food examples, which I think are quite telling because I think it was Danone's CEO, Emmanuel Faber, who was fired because while he was a darling of the environmentalist and the social yeah. focus, the results for Danone did not come through at a fast enough pace as the investment and ownership community wanted. It almost places CEOs in, an, in a difficult dilemma. You know, either they please their shareholders or join the fight for climate justice and social equity. And I want to stress very clearly, I don't think those are contra goals. I think you can pursue them together, but they have very small margins to show that they're hitting their targets before they seem to be replaced. You almost don't envy CEOs today, whereby mm -hmm. they're asked to make these difficult changes. They're making them, but they're not given the space to see it through. No, absolutely. And I think the job of the CEO has gotten harder in, in recent years, right? Because you can no longer say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to not take a stance on, uh, 
climate change as an example or social issues as they come up, it's expected of you. You're expected as a business leader uh, by your employees, by your customers uh, to take a stance, right? You're expected to do that. And I think that can be very tricky to navigate. Uh, so I do think the job of the CEO is, is, is quite challenging. Um, you know, the, the, with some of these examples, right, this, this, is a, this is speculative and a personal view rather than anything based on research that, that I or others have done. But if you take the Danone example, um, there could be a whole host of reasons why the performance was not where it was. But the yeah. fact that there was such a, um, a public uh, stance on, on sort of the environmental um, uh, considerations makes it, easy. oh, well, that was probably why, right? Mm -hmm. And to your point, um, and, and I agree with you. I do not think those are those are contrary objectives. I think, in fact, um, more and more, and we're still not quite fully there, I think, but more and more, um, they're going to be very much aligned because that's what uh, consumers are going to be asking for. Yes, I think you're right. I think it's, it's like any change in the history of corporations. When you force companies to make change, there seems to be a huge uproar about the fact that the legislation is going to put them out of business. It's going to make them uncompetitive. But eventually a CEO and a group of leaders comes along to find a business model that is profitable with the regulation and changes. It's only a matter of time before that happens, I think. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And every few decades, the media speculates that this is the end. We're never going to fix it. Automation is going to put everyone out of business. But if you look back 100 or so years ago, automation did the same thing by putting people out of jobs in the agricultural industry, farming. But industry responded and they found new ways to hire them. So I think that what I'm trying to say is that while we don't always know what the answer is going to be, I think we can have some confidence that people will find an answer. Leaders will find a way to build business models that will succeed. And I think that makes me a bit positive about all of this. Yeah, I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right. We will, find, we will find ways. I think the, the part that maybe needs some, some, some deliberate thought to is, you know, if you take the example of say the industrial age, right? Um, what, what gets overlooked a little bit is there was a transitory period where it was very difficult for uh, societies to, to navigate. And I think the same thing um, could happen with, uh, with greater automation and AI and, and, and sort of all of the digital yes. advances that are happening now, where the labor markets are not able to respond fast enough, right? Eventually, um, it all, I think it sort of all moves to a new equilibrium, but, but there is a period of, 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 of disruptive change where, um, you know, labor markets and businesses are not able to respond well. And that's, again, speaks to why, you know, from, from at least my perspective, this, this need for agility and adaptability is so great right now, because I think we are, we are at a point where there are going to be large shifts, right? There's going to be significant changes in how businesses operate and what business models look like. And, uh, and we're going to have to, have to the, the quicker we can deal with them and the quicker we can make some of those transitions, uh, the better it will will be for, for businesses and employees. So for our listeners, what would be sort of the top three, top five, whatever the number is, things they could do on Monday morning to either adopt this mindset of being a leader who can thrive in change, or if they are a leader in a running through a change program, and because I don't like the word change program, it should never end. But what are some of the things people could do on Monday morning to start to internalize this way of thinking. Yeah, I know that's that, that's a great question. So let me let me first 
little bit of a framework because I think that'll help answer this. So uh, I mentioned this earlier, but in in doing the the research for the book we wrote, um, one of the things we're looking at is how do human beings respond to uh, to change, right? And uh, and what the brain science says around this is that there is a part of us that is very much triggered by what we perceive as threats. Yes. Uh, and then there's an autonomous system within the body that responds, which we're fairly familiar with, right? It's, it's sort of a fight or flight response. Uh, and that leads us to, in the case of the sorts of things we're talking about in professional lives, it leads us to narrow our focus to solve the problem immediately, right? And that's very effective uh, at solving problems that we know how to solve and we just need to put extra effort into. Yes. It is not effective at solving problems where we don't know how to solve it and we need creativity and innovation because once we are in that heightened sort of fight or flight state, uh, it shuts down. Uh, it actually physiologically, you know, sort of shrinks our, our peripheral vision and shuts down our ability to be creative. And so the, the counter to that is we, we also have this Thrive Channel, which I referenced earlier, which is triggered by opportunity, by novelty, uh, and, 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 and the implications of that are the sorts of behaviors that elicits from us, our collaboration, innovation, and it is sort of this, this thrive uh, mindset that I was talking about earlier. And so I say that to say, now, if I bring that back to your question about uh, what are the top things that people can do, recognizing that, right? Recognizing yeah. that, they are, that they are, that changes that are driven by a threat um, might, might create some immediate movement but it is not going to create innovation and, and it is very hard to sustain movement because eventually, you know, that sort of heightened state with, uh, with adrenaline pumping through turns to cortisol, it's stress, it becomes impossible to sustain. And so recognizing that you, that, that the way to drive effective change is to have more people's thrive channels activated rather than, than survive. Right. So that's the, that's the frame. So what are the things you can do? Uh, one is reduce noise because, there is so much happening in organizational life, right? So the number of emails we get, the memos, yeah. the, the dashboards, the metrics, uh, and all of those our brain can perceive as threats, right? Because I look at the dashboard and there's, there's 10 green metrics and one red metric. It's the red metric I focus on, right? And that can start to create this constant threat, which makes it difficult to be, uh, to be open to sort of the new and the novel. And so if you can reduce that noise by taking away metrics that are no longer... Uh, meaningful or maybe are, are, are only marginally useful. Uh, if you can take away meetings, take away uh, memos. So, so evaluating how much of, of that activity in the organization is, is truly significantly value added and what can you remove? So that would be the first thing. So reduce the noise. The second one, which we mentioned earlier, is amplify the amount of conversation that is happening about opportunities and about benefits um, and that's not to say you don't talk about the threats in the environment, but it is, it is literally amplifying the other, right? So you're talking about both threats and opportunities because our natural tendency is very much to focus on threats. Yeah. So that would be the second, the second recommendation is talk more about, about opportunities. The third one I'd say is about sort of this point around how do you create more autonomy, right? So how do you yes. delegate more authority and autonomy? And I think the key to that is being able to add clarity and alignment around where you're headed as a business, right? What are the priorities? What are the key objectives? Because without that, autonomy can lead to chaos. And that's part of why leaders hesitate to give up control because they're afraid it'll lead to chaos. And without, without strong alignment, it probably will. 
And so that would be the third thing is really drive for uh, clarity and alignment on, on business objectives and, and priorities. And then maybe the, the last thing I'd say is because the level of uncertainty is so high, uh, sort of segmenting and clarifying what is uncertain and what isn't. Um, because it's easy when, when generally things feel uncertain to, um, to almost imagine that everything is. Uh, and that's probably not true, right? There, there are probably a few things that you're very clear about. You're very certain they're going to play out in a certain way for your team or for your business or your, uh, or your unit. Uh, and so being able to clarify what those are so that uh, you can compartmentalize where the uncertainty actually sits. So that's, that's maybe the fourth one. Oh, I like that. I want to go back to the second one. You talked about discussing the threats, but also discussing the opportunities. I just want to clarify that for the listeners. Are you saying that within the threats, if viewed a different way, the threats are opportunities? Or are you saying that there's a bucket of threats, but there's also a separate bucket of opportunities? More the latter, although the former is true sometimes too. So I, I don't think every threat... Um, framed differently as an opportunity, right? Some mm -hmm. things generally are, at least at an individual level, some things are generally, uh, or well, even at a business level, right? Some things are genuine threats that we need to deal with uh, and we need to address. But I think in addressing, you know, and another way to say this is problems. If we yes. focus entirely on problems, uh, which is our natural tendency, um, then we either miss opportunities entirely or we at least, if we don't miss the opportunity, it, it becomes a, okay, look, we, we, we focus on that opportunity, now let's focus on all the problems again, right? And so we don't get the, um, the benefit of sort of the, the, the excitement and the energy that we get out of focusing on a new opportunity. So that's what I mean. It's, it's, it's not that you frame the threat as an opportunity, and sometimes that may be true. Sometimes, you know, a threat looked at differently is an opportunity, uh, but, but I mean more, uh, yes, deal with the real threats, uh, but then also, talk about the opportunities that you have. Karav, thank you so much for that very, very relevant discussion. I want to thank you for being on the show. And I'm sure many of the listeners are going to enjoy this episode. So thank you. Thank you for having me, Michael. It was, it was a fun, fun discussion. Thanks. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.